turn in your Bibles or on the internet or however you do this to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. I'm going to be reading Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word that instructs our hearts, instructs our minds, brings comfort to those who by His grace have been brought to Him. Amen. Father, help us see this very controversial, very difficult passage. Help me teach. Help me teach well. Oh, may I be faithful to what is in front of us on this page. And may your Son be so exalted and lifted up in the joy of our salvation as we hear to the glory of His name. Amen. All right, this is the second week that we're in this passage. Now, what it says on the surface is it's fairly simple. The flow is he's referring to persons who receive all these great blessings. It's clearly this communal in, in the life of Jesus' church on earth. Secondly, he says, there are some persons who have that experience who ultimately then fall away. And in so doing, they re-crucify Christ to their own harm and putting Jesus up to public shame. And then he makes this very sobering statement, for those for whom that may be true, it's impossible to restore them again <clears throat> to repentance. And so the question, as we raised last week, is wait, who are these people? The, the people who have once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It's important, I think, to grasp because it's here and because he says 
it is then impossible to restore them to repentance because they are once again crucifying the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. So last week, what I did is I laid out the four major views on who are these people. It's up on the website, on our church website, that sermon. I'm not going to repeat that. What I said last week is that that fourth view, it's my view. It's what I think very strongly that he is saying, and that is, in a nutshell, this. What he writes here can and it does happen to those who have become very acquainted with Christianity and church life. And what it proves is that in the end, they were never actually saved. They, they were never born again. In Christ, they were false believers. So the big question is whether the terminology he uses here in verses 4 and 5 should lead us to conclude that these people are to be understood as those who have actually been born again by the Spirit who have actually come to saving faith, who have actually been justified by Christ. Truly saved believers. Or the question is this. Can one experience, all of these experiences he lays out here in verses 4 and 5, and not be born again? not actually have been justified in Christ or saved? Or is the text saying, no, truly born again, truly justified people, perfected by Christ, the Holy Spirit came within them and raised them from spiritual death to spiritual life. But then down the road, subsequently, that person lost their justification lost their salvation that they once had. If that is possible, if that is true, then the doctrine, the beautiful biblical teaching of eternal security is destroyed. So what I want to do then this morning is we're going to go exegetically to the text, we're going to look at the immediate context, and then we're going to go to the broader context in the book of Hebrews in order to show that the author is describing people who can experience all of these blessings and yet never have truly been born again. And then I'll just close with why that's so important 
to grasp and practical for those of us who believe and love the Lord Jesus. So first, in the immediate context, notice that the situation that he describes here in verses 4 to 6, they experienced all these things and fall away, etc. He illustrates what he just said in verses 7 and 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns, that is the land, if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So I think the picture that he's drawing here is clear in the context. The rain that falls are the experiences of church life that he just listed in verses 4 and 6. It falls on all of us, even this morning. And then the thorns and thistles, it refers to the falling away in re-crucifying Christ in verse 6. So the picture that he paints is not of a ground that receives the frequent rain and then yields a crop and then loses that crop. But the picture is of two different kinds of persons, of ground. One responds to the rain, all the blessings he lists in verses 4 and 5. They respond by producing fruit. The other ground is barren. It's lifeless. It's thus condemned. In other words, people who hear the gospel in the midst of Jesus' communities on earth, they soak in the hearing of the Word of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit in the community and respond with saving faith. They bring forth crops, fruit. Others sit in church, hear the truth. They're, they're, they're blessed by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the congregation. But eventually, they turn their back on all of it. They are a field that never produces a crop or fruit. And thus, they come into condemnation, the cursed to be burned. I can never know positively, but I'm pretty sure that the person when I was 20 years old that brought me to the first church that was going to be my church for 10 years, that brought me to that initial church service was one of those barren grounds. Now, 
Wayne Grudem, the theologian, some of you have a systematic theology. Concerning this, he writes, The idea of land that once bore good fruit and now bears thorns is not compatible with this picture. The implication is this. While the positive experiences listed in verses 4 and 6 do not provide us enough information to know whether the people were truly saved or not, the committing of apostasy and holding Christ up to contempt do reveal the true nature of those who fall away. All along, they have been like bad ground that can only bear bad fruit. If the metaphor of thorn-bearing land explains verses 4 to 6, as it surely does, then their falling away shows that they were never saved in the first place. So that's the first argument. From the context, he gives an illustration that shows they were barren ground. Then secondly, Notice the very next verse. Verse 9, he says, Though we speak in this way, yet, Hebrew Christians, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So what he says here to them is that he's persuaded that you're not the people of verses 4 to 6 who fall away because they're not real Christians. Now, why is he persuaded? Because he's confident of better things, fruit in their lives, and that is the fruit that comes with actual salvation. If the fruit is there, he says, then that's the evidence that you're true, that you're saved. And therefore, you cannot be those persons. You cannot fall away. In verse 9, the key phrase is, Things that belong to salvation. These things, he says, are better than what? The experience of falling away in verses 4 to 6. They're better precisely because these things he sees in them belong to salvation. What he is saying is that he believes they're really saved. And therefore, they will not fall away. They won't be verses 4 and 6. They won't be the barren field to be cursed. The flow of the text is in verses 7 and 8. He describes with his farm analogy the two grounds 
He describes the people who fall away in verses 4 and 6 as the unfruitful land that repeatedly bears thorns and thistles. And it indicates that they were never saved. And then in verse 9 he says that the readers in general have better things than that. Temporary, temporary experiences of verses 4 to 6. And those things, he says, are better because they evidence salvation. And therefore, both verses 7 to 8 and verse 9 indicate that the people in verses 4 to 6 who fell away never had actually been saved. That's the second argument. The third is the wider context of what this author says all over the place. And we've already seen one main one a few months ago back in chapter 3. So flip back to chapter 3. Verse 14, he writes, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And this is a place we need to pay attention to every jot and tittle. It's clear here. He says, for we believers, we have come to share in Christ. Okay. Okay. In the Greek, it's a perfect tense verb. We, we don't have that kind of perfect here. The perfect tense verb in the Greek is a past action began in the past and continues on all the way up to the very moment it's being used at the present. He says it's, it's true that we have become partakers or sharers of Christ. He doesn't say we are becoming sharers. If we persevere. He doesn't say we in the future will become sharers if we persevere. But we have in the past become partakers of Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In other words, not be those who fall away and crucify the Son of God to our own harm and put Him up to contempt. No, if we persevere and hold firm our hope, it points to the reality that we in the past have truly become partakers with Christ. He's saying our ongoing faith, our perseverance 
proves that you have actually become a partaker of Christ, which means that if you do not persevere in faith but fall away, it doesn't show that you fall out of being a partaker with Christ that you once had, but it shows you never became a partaker of Christ, that you have never truly been spiritually raised from the dead, that you have never been what Jesus would call, and Peter would call, regenerated or born again. And so this shows that in the writer's mind as a whole, in the book of Hebrews, you go back to chapter 3, verse 14, that the falling away in chapter 6, verse 6, doesn't mean you once were in and now have fallen out of partaking of Christ. It shows that that person was churched, had all the advantages of the blessings that are listed in verses 4 to 6, and yet never came to genuinely embrace Jesus, become a sharer in Christ. And then, my fourth argument is we need to notice in the text not only what's said, we're going to look at that in a moment, in verses 4 to 6, but notice what is not said of these persons who would fall away. Typical terms are not used like is used of believers, like new birth, or justified, or having been adopted, or chosen, or, or elect, or faith in Jesus. They're absent from this list. L listen to the way the author refers to genuine Christians throughout the book of Hebrews. And they're not in this list. I'm going to just rattle a bunch of them off. He says to us who are true believers, God has forgiven your sins. He has cleansed your conscience from dead works. He has written His law on your hearts. God is producing holiness of life in you. God is pleased with them they have faith, they have hope, they have love, they worship, and they pray, they obey God, they persevere, they enter into God's rest, they know God, they're God's house, they're God's children, they're God's people, they, as we just saw, share in Christ. And so let's look at the terms now then that he uses. It's true that what we read here about these experiences are experiences of all true 
Christians. But the question is, do only genuine Christians experience these things he lists? Or is it possible for these experiences to also be the experiences of people who repeatedly have been exposed to the gospel in Jesus' community and all the benefits, but who never personally embrace Christ as their Savior? I think the answer to that question is yes. That's what the writer is referring to. So let's look at them. These persons have once been enlightened. All true Christians have been enlightened. But this term doesn't necessarily have to mean more than they have heard again and again the contents of the gospel. They've learned it. They know what it teaches. This intellectual understanding of the facts of the gospel are an essential step to being saved in Christ. How shall they believe in order to be saved if they have not heard, but the hearing, the enlightenment in and of itself is not the embracing of Jesus with a heart of faith. I mean, there are professional New Testament scholars who are not believers in Jesus and can explain the contents of the New Testament better than most believers. They're enlightened, but they're not saved. All true Christians have been enlightened, but not all those who have been enlightened are true Christians. Next, he says, they are those who have tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They've tasted the powers of the age to come. Now, I think it's clear that he's pointing to, when it comes to human experiences, real spiritual experiences. But I don't think that these terms must lead us to conclude they are in and of themselves genuine, saving experiences. In other words, these people are not strangers to the gospel, is his point, and to church life, to the community, to the culture. They have to some extent, in other words, come under the, the sway and the beauty of God, the Holy Spirit, in the community 
of Christ. They've experienced some degree of blessing in their own lives. Maybe they got healed. Maybe they were once demonized. Maybe through that whole experience, it got them off of alcohol because they're an alcoholic or drugs. They turned over a new leaf. They, they, they've experienced extraordinary blessings in the community of believers. And they themselves professed and got baptized. They've heard the word of God faithfully preached again and again and again and again. They've come to taste. They've come to feel something of the beauty and the power of the truth of the gospel. But like Matthew 7, Jesus let us know there will be many who themselves could go on preaching, prophesying, performing miracles, casting out demons, and they do it all in the name of Jesus. But they're never saved. Jesus said in that day in the end, he said, I will say to them, I never knew you. Not, not I used to know you. You were in me. You were saved. You were mine, and now you're not mine. He said, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. These people have tasted the power and the blessings of the gospel, but have never, with their heart, by the Spirit, personally cherished, braced, loved, trusted the person and the work and the toning work Jesus' death and the joy of His resurrection. Then He says, they have shared in the Holy Spirit. Literally in, translated, they became, it's an aorist tense in Greek, not a perfect, they became, there's this thing that they came into the sharing of the Spirit. They became sharers in the Holy Spirit. This does not have to mean that this person was indwelt by the Spirit or born again by the Spirit. But it can easily mean they shared in the work of the Spirit in the midst of church life. Because they were in the midst of the body of Christ. He doesn't say they were filled with the Spirit. He doesn't say they were baptized in the Spirit. Okay, then 
finally he says, in their case, it's impossible to restore again to repentance. Well, doesn't that mean they truly repented? The repentance that leads to salvation. Not at all, necessarily. They clearly, the persons he's talking about, always clearly have some kind of like, okay, we see some outward signs. They have in some sense, in other words, repented or stopped particular patterns of life and turned and started these other practices there's a sorrow for sins and an even turning from many of them. Unregenerate people do this all the time, whether in the guise of church life or even outside of it. And we saw the last, last week in the book of Hebrews, Esau was an example. He couldn't... He sought repentance with tears, but he couldn't find true repentance. Judas is an example. Gave the money back, but it wasn't saving repentance. The Apostle Paul, listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So the implication is that there is a repentance that does not lead to salvation. There's changes in these persons' lives. But it wasn't the kind of repentance that led to their salvation. They weren't saved. Let, let, me, let me quote one more time Wayne Grudem on, on, on these terms. Because I agree with him here. He writes, What has happened to these people then? They are at least people who have been affiliated closely with the fellowship of the church. They, they've had some sorrow for sin and a decision to forsake their sin. In other words, repentance. They have clearly understood the gospel and have given assent to it. They have been enlightened. They have come to appreciate the attractiveness of the Christian life and the change that comes about in people's lives because of becoming a Christian. And they have probably had answers to prayers in their own lives and felt the power of the Holy Spirit at work. They've been exposed to the true preaching of the Word and have appreciated much of its teachings. They have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. These factors are all positive, and people who have experienced these things may be genuine Christians, but these factors alone 
are not enough to give conclusive evidence of any of the decisive beginning stages of the Christian life, like regeneration, saving faith, and repentance unto life, and justification, and adoption, and initial sanctification. In fact, these experiences are all preliminary to those decisive beginning stages of the Christian life. The actual spiritual status of those who have experienced these things is still unclear. Okay. That's all I got. For that, let me just, for the next 10 minutes, close and say, why is this important? How is it practical? Well, foundationally, the answer is because dear Christian loves the Lord Jesus and is in the fight of faith in your life to trust in Him, to walk by the Spirit and not by the works of the flesh. The answer is why this is important, because our hope, our joy, our peace depends on it. God's glory in saving us depends on getting this right. The doctrine, the beautiful gospel teaching of the eternal security of believers. That is food. That is preciously nutritious to the heart of genuine believers. So we are to know that, that if our faith is real, then we know that what he writes here in chapter 6, not me, not because of me, but because of him. I cannot lose the salvation that I have. And therefore, in the heat of real-life Christian battles, we can cling to texts like chapter 10 of Hebrews. Flip over there. Because right here in chapter 10, verse 14, the Hebrew writer tells us what he believes. And he tells us what he wants us to believe. Actually, let's begin with verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Here it is. For by a single offering, 
He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Think about it. If Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 to 6 meant that you could actually be justified, declared perfect, perfected in God's eyes by the blood of Jesus, and then down the road lose that perfection, that justification, that standing with God, well then what he writes here in chapter 10 wouldn't make any sense. It says that for those, here's, here's the structure of it, who are now, as he's writing, presently, it's a present tense verb, those who are now being sanctified, that's the work of the Spirit in their lives, because they're indwelt by the Spirit. They've been born again. He says, for those who are in that process right now, the offering of Christ on the cross, past tense, perfect tense in Greek. Something in the past that has its ramifications all the way through from the past up to the present moment. The offering of Christ on the cross, not will, but has perfected that person who is presently being sanctified. But it's perfected, and he adds, it makes it clear, for all time. Because his point is Jesus' point. All that the Father gives me, I lose none of them. To come to Him by new birth and that great mercy makes you a sheep. And you open up your eyes to the gospel, which tells you, you didn't do it. But Jesus, by His one offering on the cross, He has justified you. He, he has perfected you in the sight of God forever. And therefore, chapter 6, verse 6, cannot mean that those who fall away were once truly perfected and justified in God's sight. And then have lost it. And so those of us who by God's grace know is imperfect yet sinful, but there's fruit in the land for hearts and lives and ongoing repentance and a love for Jesus. We can rest our heads at night, put it down into the pillow, into the secure arms not of us, but the secure arms of the gospel by which we are saved have been saved, are being saved, and in the end will finally be saved. No dropouts.
like the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8. For whom he predestined, he also called to faith. And that's why whoever he called, he justified. And whoever he justified, he glorified. That's the resurrection of the dead someday, which is still future. And it's all one chain. And that's why this writer to the Hebrews can end his letter with these words in chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. And now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may this God equip you with everything good, that you may do His will as He is working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So right there in verse 20, He speaks of the eternal covenant which secures our salvation by the blood of Jesus. He's referring there to the new covenant, which he will lay out. The new covenant that Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied about. Which is this, the promise that God will put a new heart in us. And cause us to walk in His ways. And that therefore He will not ever turn away from doing us good. So in verse 21 here, He says essentially this. It's not. Ultimately, dependent on us, whether we persevere in faith and bear fruit. Ultimate is the huge word there. Oh, we must persevere. We must be a field that produces a crop, but behind Underneath the dirt and the ground of all of our faith, of any extent of sanctification and of obedience and of fruit, underneath it all is God and His promise to produce it in us. That's why He says, quote, He is working in us that which is pleasing. In His sight. Isn't that beautiful? This is why Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 6 is therefore extraordinarily encouraging to believers. Because apostasy, falling away, crucifying Jesus once again is not 
what a born-again person does, nor ever can do. Because the new covenant is the promise that those whom God calls to faith and sovereignly regenerates, He will keep them. He'll preserve them by working in them the fruit, that which is pleasing in His sight. And that alone, believer, is our hope. Not you. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And that's why we sing on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Lord Jesus, we thank you for laying down your life for the sheep that you have secured us by your death, justified us by your resurrection from the dead, and the sending of the Holy Spirit from beginning throughout the middle and unto the end, all glory goes to you and in you we rest. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son whom you did not spare but gave him up for all of us. And therefore it is an impossibility that through him and by him and with him you shall not give us all things we need to reach glorification on that day. Amen.